Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Dara. And I'm Greg. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in December in our Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Now on December the 3rd, you could spot the full moon close to the red giant star Aldebaran. It's also known as the Eye of Taurus. If you look towards the east in the early evening, you could spot this bright star. And if Aldebaran was the star at the centre of our solar system, its surface would extend out roughly to the orbit of Mercury. As we head further into winter, the constellation of Orion begins to dominate the sky. Try looking for the three stars in the belt. If you follow the belt down towards the horizon, you'll pass the brightest star in our night sky, Sirius. There are also two very bright stars on either side of the belt of Orion. Below the belt is the blue-white star Rigel, and further up you'll find the red giant star Betelgeuse, or Betelgeuse, which astronomers believe is due to go supernova very soon. Look towards the south, where this constellation will be higher up in the sky around midnight, and spot the moon close to Betelgeuse on the night of the 4th. Now one of the best annual meteor showers peaks this month, the Geminids. They'll be visible from about the 4th to the 16th of December, but they'll reach their maximum rate on the night of the 13th and the early morning of the 14th of December. Now the peak rate could be as high as 100 meteors per hour as it has been in previous years. But do remember, if you're looking from light polluted skies, the rate will be much less. The moon will also be in its waning crescent phase, and it will rise very late in the night, so there's a good chance of spotting fainter meteors too. Now meteor showers are generally caused by the Earth ploughing into debris left over by comets as they orbit the Sun. And this material burns brightly as it falls through our atmosphere. However, the meteors of the Geminids are not caused by a comet, but rather an asteroid known as 3200 Phaethon. If you're an early riser, then you could catch the Moon passing Mars in the constellation of Virgo and Jupiter in the constellation of Libra between the 13th and the 15th of December. Look to the east an hour before the sun rises. They're bright enough to be seen with just your eyes and look very, they look like very bright stars. Now the new moon occurs on the 18th of December and around this time is a great time to look for fainter objects which might normally be drowned out by moonlight. You could try searching for the Orion Nebula in the constellation of Orion and also the Crab Nebula in the constellation of Taurus. Both are vast regions of gas and dust in space. But the Orion Nebula is actually a star-forming region, whereas the Crab Nebula is a supernova remnant, the leftovers of a star that has ended its life. The winter solstice falls on 21st of December. This is when the North Pole is tilted furthest away from the Sun and marks the first day of astronomical winter. This is the shortest day of the year for us, least daylight hours, and at, least, uh, and at noon the sun will appear at its lowest position in the sky compared to any other day in the year. The moon will reach first quarter on Boxing Day, the 26th of December. This is a good opportunity to spot craters on the moon. With a pair of binoculars or a telescope, look towards the Terminator, the boundary between the light and dark sides of the moon, where the shadows of the crater walls make them easier to see. 
it will reach its highest point in the south around about 6pm. And if you do take any photos of the night sky, then please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. And you can also enter your astro photos into our IAPY competition, which begins early next year. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. So welcome back. This is the Cosmic News part of our podcast, and this is the part where we try and uncover two of the latest news stories in the astronomy world. We're going to ask you to listen to these stories and then vote for your favourite. Um, so before we start off, uh, we've got Gregory, or Greg, joining us for our podcast, and he's going to be uh, my partner in crime, I guess, for the upcoming podcast. And actually, Greg, you've done a really cool job. You've worked in research. Could you tell us about the research that you've done previously? Uh, yes, so uh, over the last few years I've uh, completed a, uh, a PhD and then a first year of a, a postdoc actually in astronomy research uh, and it was all to do with uh, explosions pretty much, anything that blows up, um, mostly to do with uh, supermassive black holes. So there's a particular class of event called a tidal disruption flare, which is a star being eaten by a supermassive black hole. And it produces a, a flare not too dissimilar to a, to a supernova, to a star blowing up. And so I've been looking at these and identifying new ones and uh, finding some new things out about them. All That's... those words together, explosion, supermassive black hole, flares being eaten up, it sounds incredibly exciting. Um, but I know for this month you've chosen a news story that doesn't essentially lie within your research, but it captured your interest nonetheless. So can you start us off and give us a headline? What is the news story that you have found for our viewers this month? Yes, so uh, so there's been a lot of recent interest, of course, in exoplanets, finding planets around uh, other stars and potentially of course finding habitable planets ones that either life already exists on or finding ones that one day perhaps humans could live on perhaps sometime a long way in the future um, however have you Dara any idea how long we have known about exoplanets well in our planetarium shows that we do I always talk about the idea that you know astronomers first started finding exoplanets about 25 years ago so i think 1992 was the first discovery of an exoplanet so i'm saying a quarter of a century is how long we've kind of known about them and detected them yeah so up until relatively recently that would be about right Nin 1992 as you say was the the first confirmed planet so you could potentially say 1988 as well there was a uh, a potential discovery at that point. Um, but it turns out that actually we've had evidence of extrasolar planets for 100 years. We've just had the 100th anniversary of no it now. No way. Yes, absolutely. What's more remarkable is we didn't even know it had been that long until very, very recently. That's such a weird thing. So we've known about them, but not really known about them for 100 years. Absolutely. So we've had evidence of them without realising it. So it goes all the way back to uh, an astronomer working in the early, early 20th century, uh, Adrian van Manen, uh, who in 1917, he was working on uh, another project, a different project, um, and somewhat by accident, he found what's called a high proper motion star. 
So high proper motion star just means a star which is moving against the background of more distant stars. So everything in our galaxy is moving around, uh, but the distances that we're looking at are so great that you don't appear to see most things move around but over a short period of this time. This object was appearing to move. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So this thing was uh, was noticed to move between two images taken between 1914 and 1917. Um, and he basically just referred to it as a very faint star. Uh, and another astronomer took a, a spectrum of this star. So this is splitting all of the colours of light out into uh, a rainbow, effectively. Um, and astronomers do this in order to look for um, dark regions, bright regions that might identify what this object is, what it is we're looking at. So they identified it, they classified it as an F-type main sequence star, which makes it a little bit hotter than our own sun, but otherwise fairly uninteresting. Um, so the spectrum was shelved. This was back in a time when astronomy was done with photographic plates uh, rather than the digital astronomy that so we do today. So very much back in the day. Very much back in the day, absolutely. And so the, the, the plate was uh, shelved in an archive and pretty much forgotten about. So now we fast forward uh, about 90 years to the early 2000s. Of course, by now, exoplanet science was in full swing. We already had a number of exoplanets, as you say, the first one confirmed in 1992. Um, however, there was a much older field of study that was about to reveal something rather interesting too. I'm getting and, excited now. Yes, absolutely. And this was the study of white dwarfs. So white dwarfs are the cause of dead stars. They're what's left over after relatively small stars about the size of our sun and below, maybe a little bit above as well, um, will leave behind when they die. So our sun, when it ends its life, will turn into a white dwarf star? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's a common misconception that our sun's going to explode in a supernova at the end of its life. Unfortunately, nothing so interesting. Aww. It's just going to sort of sigh its outer layers off and will be left behind with this white dwarf in the very, very centre. Okay. Um, and uh, it had been long known by the early 2000s that a number of these white dwarfs, when you split the light into its constituent colours, when you look at its spectrum, you can see these strong, dark regions, these lines, almost like a barcode running along the spectrum. Um, and this is very useful for astronomers because you can identify individual elements and chemicals from these different lines. Now, some of them they expected. They saw hydrogen, they saw helium. These are things that they expect to see because they're very, very light and they're able to um, float on top of these extremely dense, very, very high gravity white dwarfs. Um, but heavier things, metals like iron and uh, calcium and magnesium, these things you don't expect to stay around for very long. Even if they're on the, the, the surface of the white dwarf, they're so heavy that they're expected to sink into Down the into surface. This. Okay. And that takes about 100,000 years, which sounds like a really long time. Um, but if we see a lot of these white dwarfs with these metals in them, with these heavy elements in their spectra, um, then that can't have been from when they were born because that, that they have been around for billions of years. So hundreds of thousands of years compared with the billions of years they've been around. So the only way that where they could possibly still have metals like that on them or have metals like that on them now is if they've been dropped in recently. 
And this was the big discovery. So briefly, they um, wondered if maybe the something called the interstellar medium, which is the, the very, very diffuse, very, very rarefied gas which floats between the stars, might contain enough of these metals. So the white dwarf was just sort of plowing through and then picking, picking up. them up yeah absolutely right. as it goes through um but it didn't make any sense the interstellar medium is mostly made of hydrogen and helium there wasn't enough of these other metals in them okay so the only thing that would make sense is if they were absorbing uh asteroids comets and even leftover bits of planets left behind from when their star died Wow. Okay, so this is like perhaps our solar system in the future. Our sun has turned into a white dwarf and the planets, asteroids, comets are now bombarding into that remnant of a star and they are dropping their heavy elements onto it. Absolutely. And this is exactly what has been going on with all of these other white dwarfs. And this is exactly what will happen at some point in our future when our um, star expands out into a red giant causes all sorts of mayhem within our solar system <laughs> and then eventually leaves behind a white dwarf, leftover bits of perhaps the Earth, perhaps Mars, perhaps Venus or Mercury, perhaps even the asteroid belt will fall back onto the surface of this white dwarf and cause these metal lines perhaps for billions of years off into the future. This is So you're looking at a star that basically holds the history of the, the system of planets that was going around it. Absolutely, and it's also it's the only direct way with the exception of uh, looking at um, meteorites and that sort of thing, of looking at the, um, the composition of planets. Because you have to wait until they've been basically torn apart in order to, uh, to study them. The only place that happens is around these white dwarfs. You can this have a is look at this. blowing my mind. Yeah, so this, this is an comes, incredible story. This now, of course, what on earth does this have to do with that discovery back 100 years? And you've probably worked it out by now that they'd misclassified the star. They'd known for quite a while that they'd misclassified the star. They knew that it was a white dwarf. What they hadn't realised was that on that photographic plate, on that spectrum that they took back in 1917 there were these dark lines that they hadn't even noticed back then or they'd identified as something else that were these metals. And the only way those metals could appear was because a planet or something along those lines was falling into the white dwarf. And so without even realising it, these astronomers, 100 years ago, as of October, I believe, they had uh, discovered exoplanets around other, solar system, around other stars, sorry, without even realising it. I love it. I love how science is one of those things that you can uh, uncover something completely by not even going out there and looking for it. And like you said, a hundred years ago, they came across it, had no idea. And now I'm going to have to change what I say. It's not 25 years since nope. the first discovery of an exoplanet. We're taking ourselves back a whole century. Mm. So to... It we, we have to be careful, of course, because this is leftover bits of an exoplanet rather than a full one. So we won't take that away from 1992 or 1988, if you want to say that one. Uh, they, those people, those astronomers did discover the first full exoplanet. But 
Van Manen and his star back in 1917 discovered the first Piece of true evidence. evidence of exoplanets oh. 100 years ago. What a wonderful news story you've picked for this month. I'm going to have to try my best to top your news story, but I think I've got a cracker this month. Um, so the headline for my story is scientists think they have discovered a star which has exploded, survived, and then gone on to explode again. So this is a star that they are analogizing to uh, a kind of equivalent of a, a horror movie villain, one that just won't <laughs> die. Um, and it's something that they haven't seen before. So this was uh, an object which was discovered back in September 2014, and it was discovered by astronomers at the Intermediate Polymer Transient Factory. Uh, so this is based near San Diego in California, and they're basically doing a big wide field survey of the sky using optical light. So they're looking for optical light from different objects. Um, so they discovered it in September 2014, but it took a while to uh, actually define what it was. So alike to your story, finding something 100 years ago, not knowing about it, it only took them until January 2015 to classify that it was an exploding star. And I think, like you mentioned, uh, stars, they end their lives, and the massive ones end their lives as supernovae, uh, so they kind of don't have uh, fusion taking place anymore in their cores, they can't hold themselves up, they collapse in on themselves violently, and then that kind of rebound or shock results in a supernova explosion. Um, so they detected this explosion, and they uh, classified it as a type 2 supernova. So although we know there are different types of supernova, uh, this one was created by the explosion of a massive star, which we think was ending its life, but clearly it hadn't. Um, but there are also different types of type 2 supernovae. So there's the type 2L supernova. This is where when we look at the light from that star, uh, it's obviously very bright when it goes supernova, but then there is a linear decline. So it... Um, at a steady rate, its light declines basically over time. And then there's the type 2p uh, supernovae, and these are ones which have a period of slower decline, so it's almost like a plateau, and then they kind of decline in their brightness, so a bit of a normal decay there. But supernova are thought to stay bright like these uh, for about 100 days, so that's a few months that they appear to stay bright for. But that's typically the end of the story. There's not too much more after that. Yeah, that's where I should end my news story. Yeah, absolutely. I, that should yeah. be the oh, end we're done. of it. Okay, good. <laughs> but it's not. So uh, the, the crazy things about these stars, actually, it actually has appeared to be normal at first, but as they watched it, it stayed bright for over 600 days. This is close to two years. Uh, and that in itself is pretty much an unseen thing. Uh, and what's more is they found that during that period, its brightness also uh, changed. Um, so it kind of dimmed and then brightened up again by about 50% on an irregular time scale. So over that two-year period, it had dimmed and brightened about five different times. That's basically showing us that this star is exploding five times within that period and when we look at stars, they explode once and they die. But this star, uh-uh, it's going on and on. It's exploding over and over again. Uh, another thing which they saw, which kind of uh, was a bit of a surprise to them, is that most supernova, when they happen, you get that giant release of energy, uh, the light dims, and they also cool down. Um, but this object it maintained a near constant temperature of about 5,700 degrees Celsius. And that's roughly actually about the temperature of our sun. Um, but that's an unseen thing. Usually they tend to dim, they tend to lose their temperature as well. Um, and then one last thing. 
they actually looked back into the archives and they saw that in exactly the same part of the sky back in 1954, so about 60 years ago, there was another explosion at that same point. <laughs> this thing just doesn't know when to so quit, does it? It doesn't. It's, it's putting it all together. So they think that it started off with an explosion that we've recorded 60 years ago. Uh, to date now, there was another explosion. And after that, there had been five similar but smaller uh, kind of explosion-like uh, things that we've seen in its light curve. Um, and it's a big problem because we've not seen anything like this and we don't really know what it is. Um, now, you spoke about uh, spectra and collecting spe- uh, spectrum of stars, and you mentioned that it's a bit like a barcode. So we, we can break up light into its different colours, into its different wavelengths, um, and instead of seeing the whole rainbow pattern, we see those dark lines across it, those absorption lines, and they tell us what that object is made of. It's almost like forensic science in astronomy, I guess, Absolutely. working out what it's made of, uh, and that's what they're using here. Now, uh, a couple of the scientists and astronomers that worked on this uh, included Nick Conidaris and Benjamin Shappy from the Carnegie Institution of Science. And for this, they actually uh, built their own machine. So they built a machine called the SED machine. It stands for Spectral Energy Distribution. And it's something that uh, they built because in modern astronomy, we don't really have um, uh, kind of telescopes which have efficient spectrum spectrometers on them so they went away and they worked out that you could have a pretty efficient uh, spectrograph on a relatively small telescope about one and a half meters across Mm. and it would actually accommodate lots of the spectroscopic needs of lots of astronomers around the world Um, and what they basically did was they collected light into their uh, spectrometer and uh, that light is passed into a very small hole in that machine It's collimated, which means all the lines, all the rays of the light, they line up. So they're all nice and parallel. It then passes through something called a diffraction grating. So this is a small piece of equipment, usually. It's got lots of slits in it, and when light passes through it, it's a bit like passing light through a prism. It splits out, uh, it splits that light into its different wavelengths again. Um, And then they have uh, a little device, like a photo detector. Sometimes you might have heard of something called a CCD, CCD, there we go, Uh, (laughs) a charged couple device. It basically turns a light signal into an electrical signal. So it's very light, like, uh, very much like uh, a smartphone camera that's exactly what it's doing so you basically got the same technology there in their spectroscopes and by looking at what wavelengths of light they have and also their intensity how strong each of those wavelengths are they can build up a distribution they can build up uh, how much of each wavelength they're collecting they can actually look at what that star may probably uh, have in it what elements it might be made of as well um so what they've done now they've collected all this stuff they've got things that don't quite make sense, a star that's exploding over and over again, which doesn't make sense. Um, And they've come up with a possible theory. So this could be the first known pulsation pair instability supernova. Now, according to this theory, it's possible that when you have a star that is very, very massive, uh, it's very hot, antimatter can be generated in its core. Uh, so antimatter is like the opposite of normal matter. Um, its properties are essentially uh, the opposite of what we have. So we have electrons um, and uh, we would have an antimatter particle kind of equivalent to that. So something uh, that is equal and opposite, I guess. And when 
a, a normal matter particle and an antimatter particle come together, they annihilate, they almost, I don't know, disappear as such, but energy is produced as a result of that. So these, um, these two particles cancel themselves out. And they, that's exactly yeah. it, yeah. It's like a plus and a minus coming together yeah. and you end up with zero. But energy is given out or produced in, in that result. Um, so it would actually cause this whole thing, uh, making the star go very unstable. Uh, and it would uh, result in it going uh, repeatedly bright and dim uh, over a certain period of year. So it would have several bright eruptions. And that could explain what it is that we're seeing. Um, and this process is thought that it could even repeat itself over several decades before the star finally explodes and then collapses into a black hole. So to kind of summarise that, what they're saying is that if you had a star that was much, much more massive, so something that is maybe 95 to 130 times the mass of our sun, an incredibly huge star, it can explode and as it does, it blows off its outer layers, but it's still got enough material left. And so it will continue uh, exploding, re uh, releasing its material until eventually uh, it cannot repeat that process anymore and you've got something that is uh, dense enough, I guess, to form a black hole eventually. So it's just repeatedly exploding, trying to get rid of its material until eventually it can end its life. And actually in April, earlier this year, uh, I covered a story called an imposter supernova. So they saw something very similar. They saw uh, an object which appeared to explode. And after a certain period of time, there was another bright eruption from that star. So this could be another linked event to that. Or it could be something that helps shed light into what this actually is. Um, and I think it's such a, a brilliant story because it goes on what you said as well about you find a piece of evidence or something's there. We haven't quite got all of it together yet. Um, but for now, this supernova basically offers astronomers the biggest thrill in astronomy and I think that's something that we don't understand it's something that we can grasp into and actually try and find an answer to the wonder of the unknown that is and I think that's what keeps a lot of us going in astronomy it's the one thing that keeps me going even after you've answered a question there are thousands more questions that come out and it's uh, the ongoing drive I guess to find out more and more about our universe yeah, exactly absolutely so that's the two news stories that we've chosen for this month. We hope you have enjoyed them. We're going to put them uh, to the vote on Twitter. Our handle is at ROG Astronomers. We want you to vote for your favourite news story. And the results of last month's poll. So we had two news stories for November. The 50-kilometre moon cave found by the Japanese space agency JAXA and the two neutron stars colliding being detected for the very first time. We had 33 votes, 24% voted for the discovery of the moon cave, and 76% uh, voted for the neutron star collision. So that was the favourites for last month. So that's all for this month from our podcast. Hopefully you'll be back with us next month for more from Look Up. Mm -hmm.